This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. So what's the big idea? We're off and running in a pivotal election year, but there are always stories that get a lot of attention, a lot of headlines, and there are also a lot that probably don't get that much attention and need a little bit more of attention. Herb Jackson, Roll Call's politics editor, is going to talk with me about some of these stories that we see as being particularly resonant and important and maybe not getting as much attention as they should. Herb, welcome back to Political Theater. Oh, welcome. Thank, glad to be here. Glad to be here, yeah. I mean, this is for, first time for you for, for 2024. Uh, this is like t- all of 2024 to you is like April for tax accountants. <laughs> That's just it for the rest of the year. Yeah. It's just nonstop, right? Most of the year, yeah. Actually, ironically, I think April is the winning when we get a little break, but yeah. Yeah, April and you know maybe some parts of June too. Um, and then July and August, oh, conventions, and then the general and all that kind of stuff. Somebody um, print editions on the schedule then too. I know. Who, who is responsible for these kind of things? Oh, wait. Never mind. <laughs> Um, so as I mentioned, uh, uh, about, about these stories we're I want to try something, uh, you know, just, you know, my, my pick and your pick, we'll go back and forth on some of the biggest, uh, issues. And we've got five categories we, we thought would be a good way to split it up. Uh, uh, how a house political story, uh, the, the story that you think is, is important and resonant and interesting. And it's kind of your, something that's caught your attention, a Senate political story, uh, a presidential. We will. So we may talk about New Hampshire, uh, even though you know. Wow, who could have seen that coming? Uh, in in New Hampshire's results last night, a a story about the courts, and this could be a variety of uh, of ways of approaching the courts. It could be the Supreme Court. It could be criminal uh, cases, civil cases, and then my favorite, the wild card at the end. Uh, so let's let's start off uh, talking about. House, uh, House political stories, the House of Representatives. Uh, there's a lot of people up there uh, running around doing their darndest, but the political situation is different for every one of them. What's the what's the political story that you think is particularly resonant right now, Herb? Well, I mean, it's going to get attention in, in a couple of weeks, but the, the New York three uh, special election, uh, which is to fill the seat that George Santos vacated when he was expelled from the House. Um, this is a district that I, I think uh, President Biden in its current configuration would have won by about six to eight points. I can't remember the exact number in 2020, but Santos did win it in 2022. Uh, both parties have started- an open seat. It was an open seat. It was an open important. seat. Uh, both parties have spent uh, pretty heavily there, are spending pretty heavily there. The former occupant, Democratic occupant, Tom Swazi, is running. Um, and there's a, a a candidate Republican nominee named Maisie Pillip, who's a, a legislator from uh, Long Island, state legislator. Uh, it's going to be a, a nasty fight. And it's going to be one of those that if the Democrats win, Democrats have to win it 
if they're not going to just lose their heads about what's coming in November. If Republicans hold on to that seat, it's a sign that a whole lot of metrics are going to be off in November. Uh, and then Nathan Gonzalez, our political analyst, and I are going back and forth on how much Democrats have to win it by to not be losing their heads. Um, but, you know, that's just one of the many, many House stories. There's going to be there's a whole lot of uh, member Republican on Republican uh, vengeance fights that are also going to be coming that. And, and there are a lot of former members who are trying to get back in. But it's such a terrible place. Why do they want to come back? They talk about how Washington is broken. Why do they want to come back? It must be the fact that you can go out at widely gathered, widely attended events and eat finger food. I, I think that's the answer. <laughs> Must be. I mean, those those bagel dogs are delicious. So just a little, little, you know. Yeah, good stuff. Mine is related to that, it, and it is. It has to do with the dwindling number of House members themselves. <laughs> we, we have a three vacancies now. Uh, we have the, the seat of Kevin McCarthy, the former Speaker who left uh, after being deposed as Speaker and left at the end of last year. That is vacant uh, right now. It's a Republican seat, um, and that special election's already been scheduled for later on. We have the Santos seat, as you just mentioned, uh, created by his uh, expelling from the House. And then just recent, just this couple days ago, we had Bill Johnson, a Republican from Ohio, who decided that he had had enough uh, of the House and took a job as the president of Youngstown State uh, in University in, in Ohio. So you know the the the. Already slim Republican majority keeps getting slimmer. Uh, it may get one, you know, may get even slimmer depending on what the results in the New York three is, because that was a Republican seat with Santos if Swazi wins. Or they could just sort of hold serve uh, in, in that. And then, you know, we do get a couple other folks leaving. Brian Higgins, who's a Democrat from New York, uh, that represents the Buffalo area. He's leaving sometime in February to take a job uh, closer to home. You know, he, it sounds like he's still leaving. Although I wonder if if anybody else leaves, maybe Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, like kind of, uh, you know, doesn't let him leave. <laughs> like, you know, puts a barrier around his office so he has to stay. Um, but you know, we and it just seems like every day we're getting news of another member who is leaving. Now a lot of these are safe seats. I get it. Um, you know, Kelly Armstrong, who's the Republican. Uh, at-large member from North Dakota announced yesterday that he was not going to run for re-election of the House and he's going to run for governor. You know, it. I don't think in the wildest Democratic strategist fantasy they think that they have a shot at picking up uh, the the Republican at-large seat in North Dakota. Although, you know, Earl Pomeroy, uh, who was a Democrat, held the seat uh, in, in recent memory. But people are just, they keep on leaving uh, and the margins are so close that we might, we're, we're getting precariously close to a point where the the Republicans may be in the majority, but they may not have as many members to vote on the floor at any given time because we still have people like Steve Scalise, who's been out on kind of an extended uh, cancer treatment uh, program and has not been in, in uh uh, in, at the Capitol, Hal Rogers, the dean of the House, was in a car accident recently, and he, he was not able to, um, you know, kind of. He, he may be, you know, he's been released from the hospital, but he, we don't know a lot about his condition. But it just, to me, it underscored how close things are, and also that there are not, 
a lot of compelling reasons to get people to stay, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, especially if you're just like, I've had enough of this place. Yeah. And it also highlights the problem they have with succession uh, that, you know, you don't want to think about it, but all sorts of things could happen and three or four members are unable to attend or even could die. Um, and it in it's up to the 50 states and how their laws work. I mean, in, in some of the vacancies we've seen in, in just this Congress and in the last one, a member just saying they're going to resign lets the you know governor schedule a special election. We had this in Utah. Um, so that the primary to replace Chris Stewart was actually held before he left so that the nominee was in place and the seat was only vacant for a short time. In other cases, you know, in Florida a couple, a couple of years ago, Ron DeSantis let the seat of Alcee Hastings stay open a whole year and they didn't have the primary until November and didn't fill it until the following January um, because that was a Democratic seat and it hurt Pelosi's majority. So it, 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 it's it's something that I know that the people who talk about the House have talked about. You know, in the Senate, there is an option and it was created when they 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 changed the Constitution to allow the direct election of senators that governors can appoint acting senators. So that's why, for example, LaFonza Butler is serving in California after the death of Dianne Feinstein. Uh, but, yeah, the House has this weird thing that, you know, people get sick and, you know, Republicans made a big stink about proxy voting in 20 by the, when the Democrats implemented it. But they are they are talking about whether to do proxy voting if a member is ill or, you know, even some Republican women have signed on to a bill with Democrats to say if you get if you give birth, you should allow proxy voting. So Democrats, Republicans, they might be able to get along on this issue because they both have seen it happen to each other now. Uh, but maybe that's fantasy. And and again, it's just we're gonna we're gonna see more developments on this over the course of this year because you know someone who knows they may just be like I've had enough or I'm sick and I or I need to take care of a, uh, you know my spouse or whatever I mean like there are very plausible you know reasons that people wouldn't want to finish the term and you know when you when you're talking about like only a couple votes uh, separating at any given time. I mean, they, you know, the, the house is, is busy, you know, with a, an impeachment inquiry into both the president, uh, president Joe Biden and the Homeland security secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, but they have to like actually kind of watch the votes. Cause they, they, there may be, they may be in a situation where they don't actually even have enough Republicans, assuming Democrats all stay together uh, to impeach either of these gentlemen. Well, yeah, I mean, um, and, it's probably clear that if they had the votes, they'd be calling them, you know, uh, and right. when they can't even pass a rule to put legislation on the floor, um, it's it's not looking good. Right. All right. Let's move on to the Senate. What's your Senate uh, political story that you're that you, you think is is a is a big deal. So the Democrat the Democrats are in trouble in the Senate. No 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 two ways about it. There's a 51-49 and with Joe Manchin gone it's probably a 50-50 at best. Uh Democrat Democrats only have a few shots to pick up Republican seats. One of them is in Florida. Um Rick Scott, Florida got very Republican lately. You know Ron DeSantis won very comfortably there, Marco Rubio mm -hmm. won very comfortably there in 2022. But Rick Scott barely edged into the Senate six years ago, uh, five years ago, basically, uh, by beating Bill Nelson. And, you know, 
it's not he's not in, in serious trouble right now. <laughs> uh, we have him sort of on the on the battleground. But if in Florida they're trying to put an abortion rights amendment on the ballot and We've seen that pull a lot of Democratic turnout in other states since the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court in 2022. So I would say that that's the the thing to watch is if that gets on the ballot, you have a former House member there, Debbie McCarcel Powell, who's who's likely Democratic nominee. Um, you know that could put Florida in much more different situation. Um, yep. And you know that's one I'm, I'm I I have on the on the radar. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the you know, Florida always seems to be a Democratic white whale. You know, they 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 you know they always feel good about it, and they always fall just a little bit short. You know, over the last twenty years, years or so. But one of the things that makes it so unpredictable uh, is kind of like my home state of Arizona. So many people move there in any given year that if you do have a close election, it can really change things. You know, markedly like. You know, DeSantis won handily in 2022, the, go- the governor's you know race re-election, but in 2018 it was very close, uh, and and it was against a fairly flawed candidate. More flaws came out after the election about Andrew Gillum uh, than than before, but it it was it was a squeaker of a governor's race uh, in in 2018, and then you know now it's it's like oh well Florida is is like. There's all kinds, you know, of of fascinating things about Florida, but it has definitely gotten more Republican in the last few cycles. I, I just a, as a side note, um, this doesn't have anything to do with Scott, but I just think it's amusing is that there's been this movement among some uh, Florida politicians to uh, introduce legislation for the state of Florida to pick up Donald Trump's legal bills uh, among the multiple uh, court cases, and none other than. Ron DeSantis weighed in and said, not if I have anything to say about it. And I have a veto pen. <laughs> so perhaps Mr. DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, is still smarting a little bit from his uh, relatively early exit in the uh, Republican primary. Uh, but, you know, just the the dynamics, the political dynamics in, in Florida change from one year to another. And it's it's kind of unpredictable. So yeah. And, I, I think and also, great let's not forget that, you know, the Democrats have spent a long time beating up Rick Scott over his financial plan that would have sunset all legislation. And then he had to amend it to say he didn't mean Social Security and Medicare, but they still got pictures of it when it didn't didn't include that caveat. And, you know, there's a couple, three retirees who live in Florida. Yeah, just to try and motivate with that. <laughs> just a few. Um, my favorite, you know, story in the, in the Senate right now, or the one that I'm I'm sort of following, just with curiosity about, like, I have no idea how this is going to turn out, is the Senate race in Arizona. Um, again, not a huge surprise being an Arizona guy, but you know, this is one of those uh, you know toss up races, right? Um, you know, uh, Kirsten Sinema won this seat in 2018 as a Democrat. She's running as, or she is an independent now. She left the Democratic Party and she is an independent. Uh, Ruben Gallego, uh, the congressman from the Phoenix area, a Democrat, is running for the Democratic uh, nomination. And Carrie Lake, who lost the governor's race by a by a whisker a couple years back, is is the you know a, probably the Republican frontrunner. I mean, there are a few people in the in the race, but she has you know a, a profile before she was a politician. She was on everybody's television all, you know, five nights a week um, uh, as, a, as a former anchor. And so it's this sort of fascinating 
potential three-way race um, among three pretty high-profile uh, political figures in Cinema Lake and Gallego. Gallego may be the the least known of them, but he's also like a you know he's a Marine, you know, combat veteran. He wrote a book about his time uh, in that. I mean, he's and he's done. He does a lot of you know sort of grunt work among constituents uh, in in not just his district, but he's he's really made a lot of the rounds. So this could be a very tight race. And the big thing that I think is just fascinating about this is that Cinema has has not declared unequivocally that she was running. She's raised a lot of money. She has a lot of money. She's always been a good fundraiser. Uh, but if she wants in this race, she has to collect 3% of registered independent voters on a petition by April 8th. So this that seems like a long way away. It's a, it's a forever time in, in politics. But it, it changed the voter registration tallies change on a quarterly basis. So we don't know the exact number, but it's in excess of 40,000. It's somewhere it, it, in the last quarterly report from the secretary of state's office, it would have been 43,000 uh, um, signatures that, and they can only be registered independent voters. They cannot be Democrats. They cannot be Republicans. And really what this means is she needs more than that because they always throw out you know, you know, quite a few signatures that are invalid. People don't know what their registration is, status, but they, you know, right? Uh, they'll they'll sign somebody's petition anyway. So this is a lot, and it's expensive too, because there are you know firms that specialize in signature gathering, Democrats and Republicans, primarily. Democrats are not going to work with her <laughs> on on this one. You know, maybe she gets somebody out of state who knows. But there are a lot of logistical hurdles that she has to overcome in order to get on this ballot and get these 40,000 plus signatures. And it's not clear uh, whether she's going to. By the way, this reporting, this is from fantastic reporting by Ronald Hansen at the Arizona Republic, uh, where, where I'm getting this. And, and But it is to me, it's fascinating because it's like this is, this is a, a state that Republicans have targeted. They, they feel like they've, they've got a shot at it. Uh, Democrats obviously, you know, are have to retain everything. They have to hold serve on on all of their toss up races in order to retain the majority. So this is a big deal, I think, and not just because I'm from Arizona. Well, this is the question, though: if she's not on the ballot, is that better for Carrie Lake or Ruben Gallego? Because from what I've seen of some of the polling, she run her running takes votes away from both of them, but more votes away from Lake. So when you say Democrats don't want her to help her get on there, maybe they do want to get her. <laughs> you know, in, in Hanson's reporting, he he talks to a couple of uh, you know firms, people who specialize in this, and one guy, one Democrat was like, he's like, I don't have anything against cinema. It's just that I run a partisan firm, so I'm just not, I'm not going to help an independent, especially when there's a Democrat who's running. But again, there's more, more than one, a couple of ways to skin a cat, I guess. Yep. All right, presidential. We've avoided it. <laughs> but, you know, again, throwaway line, Donald Trump won in New Hampshire last night, beat Nikki Haley, you know, by I guess what the final tally was by by about 12 points, 10 points, 12 points. 18 25 points I think it was Trump said. Yeah. Uh so just subtract a few from that. It was a um, landslide. Yeah, it was not the margin that he enjoyed in in Iowa. And you know this was Haley's good shot, you know, at at, at trying to change the dynamics of the race because independents can vote in the primary. It didn't really change a lot of dynamics there, you know. You know, possibly, you know, another 
wrinkle here too is that Joe Biden was not on the ballot because the Democrats want South Carolina to go first on the on the primary calendar. Uh, so Dean Phillips, Congressman, Democratic Congressman from Minnesota, was up there uh, in New Hampshire hoping to score a win. Uh, he did not. He lost to the write-in candidate Joe Biden uh, from a, basically a rogue primary. Uh, but those are so those are the headlines from that. We got them out of the way. What are the other big presidential stories? Uh, you go first, Herb. The the key is whether. Donald Trump, who won in 2016 and lost in 2020 and has any plan to try and build his base. I know he's exceptionally good at motivating his base and, you know, keeping his base. I mean, uh, when I was watching the news last night, uh, our friend Manu Raju was talking about how the Republican kill Republicans return to Trump. After January 6th, they were done with him, they were saying. And now they're all like, he's our nominee. We have to be behind him. He's built that group back. But he it's partly because he kept his supporters. But he is he getting anybody else to come over to him who he didn't win in 2020? Or is he just counting on Biden being weaker than he was in 2020? Um, and you know, you you watch that race, and I'm 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 waiting to see some effort to reach out to voters who may have been against Trump before and are coming back. Um, it seems like once people go against Trump, other than House and Senate members, they they don't come back. Uh, but you know, that is going to be the big thing to watch: is is can he he build his support and win back states that he lost in 2020, even though he says, and you know. It was a different election in 2020. There's no denying that people voted in different ways when we were locked down um, and when states, you know, tried to prevent their election workers, among other things, from being catching a viral disease. Uh, so they offered different ways to vote. But, you know, now Republicans are trying to say, hey, you know, absentee voting, not that bad. Let's let's all send in our ballots. So. And that's the thing. I, I want to see whether or not they can build on what they de- what they had in 2020. I am looking at the the other side of the ledger, uh, and and specifically, can Joe Biden and Kamala Harris build or keep together what seems like a very fragile coalition uh, of of Democratic voters and independents who they relied on to win in 2020. And I think that they have a real task in front of them. Uh, going against them, in in particular, is you know what's going on in Israel and Gaza. Uh, I think that the, you know there are a lot of particularly younger voters, uh, which are a key part of the Democratic bloc, uh, really are upset about the conduct of this war, uh, and they they see uh, Biden as being complicit uh, in uh, war crimes. And that that's not a that's not an easy um, position to shake, uh, particularly when if you just turn on the news, uh, and people who are not Hamas uh, are are being hurt, killed, you know, becoming refugees, you know, starving, you know, it, it's not a it's it's a real challenge. And we've already seen a number of people uh, in the particularly in the Muslim American community who have said we will not support Joe Biden, and it's not that they have to support Trump; they just if they just stay home and don't vote, if enough people in Dearborn, Michigan, which has the highest percentage of, of Muslim American 
uh, you know, Americans in, in the United States, if, if just enough people in Dearborn stay home and don't vote for Joe Biden, that could be Michigan. And that's a big trove of, of votes. The thing on the positive side, which brings p- more people into the coalition that weren't necessarily there before, abortion. Um, you saw the, the president in, in, uh, in, in events yesterday talking about abortion rights and the vice president talking about abortion rights. It's, this is a hugely, as, as you mentioned with the Rick Scott, uh, you know, wh- whether he, his political fortunes will, will turn on whether there's a ballot initiative on abortion rights in Florida. This is something that's highly motivating for people. And it's not, it, it is increasingly not a partisan issue. Uh, the, the abortion rights. Uh, it's it's highly popular to for for people to have says over of what's happening with their bodies, uh, and so and th- this is a big motivating factor. And it sounds like the Biden campaign team knows this because right off the ground they're they're counter programming the New Hampshire results. They didn't, weren't even really talking so much about the fact that their guy won a write-in campaign against poor Dean Phillips. <laughs> they're talking about abortion rights. Abortion rights. This is what. Republicans want to do. They want to restrict abortion even more. So I think that that's a huge part. Like how do they keep that coalition together? Do they grow their coalition? But it's kind of the, you know, it's related to what you're saying about like, how does, is Trump going to try to grow his, his uh, base of support? Yeah. And the, 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 there are some Democrats who are getting angry about the, you know, the people who are protesting over Hamas and in Gaza you know, the thing about it is, though, the Democrats can't say we're here to protect democracy. This is when you get to yell at your leaders. It's election time. You know, now maybe they're not legally allowed to shout the president down when he's giving a, a speech, which is why they probably were let out. They were let out of the room when he was trying to give his speech last night in Manassas. But, you know, this is democracy. You know, people who are part of his base are angry about something and are making sure he knows it. I'm not sure there's an easy answer for him, but but this is this is what he's going to have to deal with, and you know that's that's going to be the que- that's another big question on this race is whether those people stay home or hold their nose or can be motivated to vote more for one thing than another or who knows where the Israel Gaza situation is going to be in November, right? Courts. Court. What's your? We've got a lot to pick from in the in the in the court in the in the judicial system. Uh, what's the biggest story for you? Pickleball, absolutely pickleball, professional pickleball. <laughs> uh, especially since the paddles they got the quieter ones now. Anyway, um, you know the the big question for me is is when the courts when the Supreme Court steps in and stops the Trump trials. I I can't see a way that he will actually, even though I watch cable TV and there's some hosts on the liberal station, uh, MSNBC, who are trying to make people think that, wait until he's convicted, that's going to bring all these people back. Uh, I just don't see how he goes on trial between now and November. Uh, I could be wrong, but I could also see that the courts, don't, they don't have to sit there and buy the he's completely immune argument. They could just say, we need more argument we need we need uh, argument in lower courts on this issue, and put it back there for a couple more months. Uh, and in the meantime, things are frozen. I I, I just think that that's going to come. And I don't know. I mean, we it's again weird. You and I talk about this stuff all the time. There's a lot of people who are just not tuned into it. How will they react if they say his trial won't happen? 
I don't know. I mean, maybe that alone will be a motivating thing. It's certainly interesting that charging him with crimes pumped up his popularity because it 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 made them look like somebody was trying to keep him from being able to run. Um, and it he sold that argument brilliantly. Um, he's he's very good at doing that. So uh, what he does if they take the the, the the pain off the back of his neck and he actually has to go run on something else. I don't know. Maybe that'll change the dynamic of race. Yeah. Um, my, my pick is the Supreme court's uh, decision on uh, Miff Pristone and, and access to uh, uh, medical, you know, uh, abortion drugs uh, that are, I mean, the FDA is, is signed off on, uh, allowing you know people to get these through the mail and so forth, which has allowed you know folks in states that have big uh, abortion restrictions to get them. I mean, I, th- I think that some of the statistics I've seen is that you know roughly half of abortions in, in the United States are are, are medically induced or, or or drug you know pre- you know prescription drug in- induced. Um, so this decision will come late in the term. You know, the Supreme Court's term is is usually over in uh, late June or in some cases early July. Um, you know, I think that there is a pretty good argument to make that the Dobbs decision in 2022, which overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, really mitigated a lot of the losses that the Democrats were anticipating, particularly in the House, uh, but also in, you know, in legislatures, in the Senate, you know, they retained, they added a seat uh, in, in to their majority in the Senate. And I just, that's a huge question mark about where this comes down. Because if, if abortion is further restricted in an election year, right before the conventions, I can't help but think that that will be a motivating factor for, particularly for uh, Democrats who have already signaled that they're going to make abortion a big issue. Yeah. I, or it's just more of the same. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. Last week when the March for Life was happening here in the district, I was actually in, in on the metro, uh, on a metro platform in D.C. waiting for the train and lots of people clearly going to the protest at the Hill were there. And I realized that, you know, those rotating ads they have on this platform. One of the ads that kept coming up was for Plan B with a QR code. And I, I was just wondering, like, what is it like? Oh, you know what? I need to get that drug. Let me go scan this ad in the subway in the metro <laughs> before I get on my 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 red line train. I mean, but it was interesting. I wondered whether any of the people who were demonstrating caught that they were standing in front of these ads. So um, I'm sure that if they had, they would be upset about it. Wild card. What's your wild card? story you're following and why is it important? I would have to say crime. I mean, crime, you can parse statistics any way you want. The, you know, murders may be down, but there's a whole lot of crime. And I think the the way this comes into, into the play is really, again, you're talking about the Biden coalition. If there are people in cities who would otherwise never think of voting Democratic, but are angry at Democrats at the local level for either not being as tough on crime or changing criminal codes so that things they think are wrong aren't punished anymore. Uh, And you can take a a dozen cities around the country and subtract tens of thousands of votes that would otherwise be going to Democrats 
I mean, certainly when we talk about New York State and New York Third District, you know, the way Republicans ran against crime in 2022 is one of the reasons they picked up seats in in New York State when the Democratic State uh, Congressional Campaign Committee chairman was the a New York congressman, um, Sean Patrick Maloney. And, you know, we've since seen the mayor of New York's popularity plummet. Um, and it's something Republicans are running against heavily right now. Um, they, they ladle the border into there and say that this is because Biden has opened the border or whatever. But it's it's more just, you know, subway crime, street crime, fair jumpers, you know, those kinds of things will feed something in voters when properly motivated if if the message the Democrats are bringing isn't appropriate in response. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's, it's huge. And the, it, it seems like crime is also sort of a lagging indicator. I mean, the statistics may be getting better, but for a lot of people, they, they still feel that, you know, this is an issue with them. All, all it takes is like one, you know, group of kids running out of CVS with a bunch of toilet paper or whatever, you know, uh, to and and a manager, a harried manager, running them down, you know, in, in the street uh, or, or just or a fair you jumper. Know, you yeah. want to go in shopping in the, in the grocery store, and you have to get somebody to unlock the cabinet so you can get laundry detergent. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. It's just like these little nuisance reminders of it. Yeah. My wild card is uh, again related, uh, but not but not exactly the same, and that is political violence. Um, the January sixth, twenty twenty one, a cap uh, attack on the Capitol, I think, has opened the you know the the floodgates on this. It, it is uh, there are particularly uh, Republicans in the House have normalized or tried to normalize what happened on that day. Um, you know, the you have the. Uh, House Republican Conference Chairwoman Elise Stefanik uh, describing people who beat up police officers and damage property in the United States Capitol, referring to them as hostages, which is mimicking, you know, uh, the the language of Donald Trump, uh, who's described these people as patriots. Um, and you know, it, it's just you know when you read the accounts of why people are being sentenced and the the you know the pain that they inflicted and the violence that they they brought forth that day, and you know, I, I I don't think that anything much to you, what you were saying about like uh, is Trump going to try to uh, broaden his appeal. The language that he uses, even last night in his victory speech, you know, is is very harsh. I mean, the you know when when he's uh, visibly upset and about Nikki Haley saying that she's going to continue to stay in the race, and he calls her an imposter and says you know that she maybe she should be investigated by I don't know a weaponized DOJ. And then also that he doesn't get angry, he gets even. This is language that enables other people, gives them permission to perpetuate violence against their political rivals. And not even the political figures themselves, Capitol Police is completely overworked in responding to threats against members, but just supporters, people who support a particular candidate. The, I mean, it, it's a. I think this is a very like dangerous time. And I apologize to my listeners, our listeners uh, here at political theater for being kind of a doomer on this, but this is an important issue and it is not getting any better. Uh, no one, you know, th th there is one side that is, you know, normalizing violent rhetoric and it's, it, it really is, is playing with fire. Yeah. I, I worry about that. I mean, I certainly watched, um, uh, I, I read a story that, uh, our, our, our competitors at Politico did, uh, and there was just a training session 
uh, are for people who just work in counting votes. And mm-hmm. the the reporter interviewed lots of people about just the mood. And the mood is concern that even when we do everything right, people won't believe that we did it right. right. Uh, and, you know, this concept that, you know, like you can't vote on a machine because that'll get manipulated. Um, you know, that's probably possible. But, you know, like, so could the stock market, right? I mean, there, there are machines everywhere now. Um, and to say we have to go back to hand-counted ballots because then there's a then there, then we can be sure. But, you know, you still need humans then to count ballots. And I don't know about you, but when I add things up and the machine adds it up, the machine is usually right. And I usually make a mistake. So, uh, you know, yeah, the violence, the, the threat of vote around voting and, and elections, not just the threat around officials. I mean, we've certainly seen the amount of money that members spend from their campaign accounts and from their House and Senate accounts for security go up. They changed the rules, allowing the, that money to be used for both. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's, it, and I, I mean, let's not forget that, you know, Steve Scalise, we talked about him. He was he was nearly fatally killed by somebody motivated by political violence, practicing soft for a soft for a baseball game. I mean, yep. there, there are crazy people in both parties. Um, and, you know, you, you've got to be careful that you don't just, you know, Antagonize, antagonize, or you know, infuriate, or motivate any of them. Uh, right. You know, that's the thing. Which is hard when you're talking about something like politics, where people feel very passionately about it. And and you're right the 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 way people feel is 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 so ingrained in their identities now about politics. It's hard to find the kind of situation where you feel like you can exist on the same plane in some of these most heated conversations. And my worry is that, you know, it's not the, the rhetoric is just being dialed up now. And and it's, it's partly because it's a way to raise money. And, and the people who are telling you how to campaign want you to be able to raise lots of money because they, you know, live off of it. <laughs> Well, Herb, thanks for kind of doing this, you know, little little change of uh, way that we've done things uh, in in the past. But I kind of I, I dig, you know, kind of going through the, the the stories that we're reporting on or the stories that we like, kind of catch our eye, and we think will have some resonance for for the rest of the year. Uh, so, thank you for your thoughts. Glad to do it. And thank you out there, listeners, for tuning in uh, again. Share, share your thoughts about our podcast. Like us on uh, iTunes. Watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to the newsletter on rollcall.com. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.